Um, don't ever be scared that somebody's gotten there before you. I used to be really nervous that I was not going to be able to sell the Poppy Ward because Ken Liu had just published The Grace of Kings. Um, but I mean, <laughs> like white writers like do the same retelling of like fairy tales all the time and they're treated as completely different stories. And even in China, like the way that we retell myths and, and talk about fairy tales, like there are infinite variations. So, um, you know, there's space for everybody and publishing may not always realize that, but um, the good stories are, I, I really believe will find their way out there. And um, never, never, ever feel like there's only space for one Asian in the room. You're listening to Chief Executive Ante, the podcast exploring the work lives of Asian Americans beyond the conventional doctor, lawyer, and engineer. I'm your host, Jennifer Duan Faltz. Booking today's guest was an object lesson in shooting your shot, which I am historically not very good at doing. One of my writer pals pinged me and said, hey, this author that we both love just posted on Twitter about appearing on book blogs and podcasts leading up to their new book this fall. You should add her. And I was like, but, 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 but my podcast is tiny and I'm just a mom who likes reading things. My friend, bless her, told me to message her anyway, so I did. And here we are. Rebecca Kwong just won the Astounding Award for Best New Writer, has written an award-winning book every year since 2018, all while being a Marshall Scholar, earning degrees from Cambridge and Oxford, and getting ready to start her PhD at Yale. Whew, I need a nap just thinking about all that. Without further ado, welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about what a typical day is like for you both pre-COVID and during COVID? <laughs> and also maybe if there's a difference between, I don't know, writing day and non-writing day. Yeah, well, those are wildly different days. Um, so pre-COVID, um, I guess I had two typical days. The first kind of typical day, which is um, during term time, is I just go to class and I do my homework and I read and I work on my papers and I don't get enough sleep. And sometimes I get dinner with my friends. And I try to stay on top of publishing emails, but I'm like a notorious black hole uh, whenever my editorial team needs anything from me. And it's a disaster. Um, and then when we're not in term times, or rather when I don't have exams coming up right away, uh, then I try to work on whatever book project I have under contract for at least four to five hours a day. So I'm really, really bad at working for long periods of time. Like I can't do like more than a two or three hour session at once. So I break it up across the day and I, you know, make sure I'm doing other stuff to, to keep the brain stimulated and fresh. Um, but yeah, so that's how my work schedule used to be. But now, because I'm just at home all the time and I am no longer in school and I'm actually, uh, so I was supposed to start my PhD um, in the fall, which was actually going to be quite scary because I also have a new book due and I didn't know how I was going to handle the first year of PhD coursework and draft this new book. Um, but now I've spoken to my advisor and we've all decided that the most prudent thing to do would be to defer for a year, which oh, okay. means I actually, for the first time in my life, I am a full-time writer. Um, which is new and scary, but also it gives you a lot of breathing room. It's great. Um, it means I've had to like be a lot better about structuring my day um, and like creating routine for myself. But yeah, right now I mostly, I write all day. I have to chuckle a little bit about 
the long bursts of working for long bursts of time. I am a parent and our preschool has been closed since March 15th. And I think, I don't think I've had more than like 45 minutes <laughs> to do anything for however many months that has been. Um, how do you manage your time during the day? Now, I well, fortunately, during- I do not have a young child to take care of. Um, I have a couple of close friends who also have books under contract um, or have deadlines coming up who are dealing with toddlers at home right now. And they just sound absolutely miserable. Um, <laughs> so I feel a little lucky that I, it's too early in my life for that. Um, so basically, I have a big issue with burnout. Like if I just force myself to spend way too many hours working on one project, then I lose enthusiasm for that project. I stop having ideas. So I'm actually a pretty slow writer. I just aim for a thousand or so words a day, um, which is fine because if you can easily like get a book out once a year, um, if you're writing a thousand good words a day. Um, So in order to make sure that I'm still like generating those ideas and staying fresh and staying excited about the project, I'll intersperse my day with, Um, activities like studying other languages or doing course reading um, related to what I'm going to be studying next year or just doing research generally for the book um, just so I can make sure my brain is occupied with a bunch of different types of tasks because like I can work for a whole day but I can't work on the same task uh, for the entire day if that makes sense. Yeah I think there's definitely diminishing returns actually I think I just experienced this like before we got on I was working on a draft of something and like my brain and my body was like, we need food. We need glucose. This isn't working. And I'm like, I'm so close. I'm so close. I texted a friend of mine and she, my freelance bestie. And she was like, go eat something. If you're not done in 10 minutes, go eat something. I'm like, okay, yes, mom. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's definitely diminishing returns in plugging through when you've just passed the point of this is productive yeah. anymore. I've um, also discovered yeah. that I just can't send emails when I'm tired because I used to be like, oh yeah, email, email's easy. Like I'll do that when I don't really have to be focused. But this morning I was trying to send an email about the pre-order incentive for the newest book out to like my whole marketing and publicity team. And I accidentally sent it to the wrong Angela. I sent it to the Angela who is in charge of like fees and tuition at oh. my college. <laughs> so I just sent a follow-up email like please discard that that has nothing to do with you (laughs) yeah yeah email takes a surprising amount of brain power like I I now make email like its own task I'm like okay I'm going to sit down and I'm actually going because I read stuff throughout the day but I choose to like respond to it at like I try to respond at a set time because otherwise one, I just get scattered from other things that I should be doing. And then, I don't know, it takes, yeah, it takes more brain power than you think, than you would think. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, I think you alluded to this a little bit already, but I'd love to hear more about your writing process. Are you an outliner? Do you write in order? Do you do a whole draft first or a revise along the way? I can't do that. I edit, I will edit myself into oblivion if I, <laughs> did I do this? I'm just curious about your process. So I'm definitely a discovery writer. I have tried the whole outlining thing multiple times before, but I just can't get into it. And I think what I struggle with is I really need to know how the story feels 
And like, I need to understand the weight and the heft of it. And I also need to understand the characters. I need to know them. I need to feel like I understand their voice before I can determine from like a top down perspective, uh, how they're going to behave in any given plot outline. Um, so what I do is I write, uh, not chronologically. I do not write in a linear fashion. I also, I don't even write linearly when it comes to scenes. Like I'll sit down to write and I'll just write whatever really excites me at that moment. So what ends up happening is I write all the scenes and chapters that I'm really looking forward to. The ones that I think are the images that are most crucial to the book. And then once I have that down, then I start like reverse engineering the plot and mm. the sequence in which they happen. Um, and then I figure out the small things, like how exactly do they get from point A to point B? Like where, when does this information get revealed? When does this like character betrayal happen? Um, and all of that happens later once I've, I've figured out like the, the major plot points. Um, and I've heard this described as writing to the peaks. Um, that's a term that I think I learned at Odyssey, which is like a speculative fiction writing workshop, which is like you write like the high points and then everything else is just connective material. Um, and this is really, really messy. And it means a lot of rewriting um, because the scene that I think is going to happen almost never happens in the same way, uh, which means that I just like, I simply cannot be a perfectionist about my first drafts. Like yeah. the sentences are ugly. Like the dialogue is incomplete. Like the scenes are only ever like 80% there, like never write a full scene until the very end. It's like one of those like, you know, like brain teaser puzzles that you pick up at the dentist's office. And it's not until you can slot everything in at the exact same time uh, that you can like put any of the pieces together. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I write really bad and ugly first drafts with like terrible language. Um, but then once like all the pieces are in the right place, then I go in and add in the shading and coloring and the, you know, characters, facial features, etc. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually just saw, I think it was a catapult workshop on, I think they called it joy first drafting, which sounds a lot like what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, that might actually be something that would be, that would be worth trying for me. Cause I, I am a planner, but I think with fiction, I don't know, like I get, I get bought when I try to go linearly, I get bogged down in stuff that I'm not interested in. And then I get bored yeah. and tired and distracted and I just stop. But I mean, I might, I might give that a try actually. Um, yeah, exactly. I get bogged down, especially if I don't know where everything's going. And it's not like I have no idea what the story looks like. I think the key is, I don't know what much of the story looks like, but I always know how it ends. Mm -hmm. And at least for every single act, I know exactly what I'm writing towards. So if you have that like internal sense of direction and, and a general idea of where everything needs to end up, right? Like it's okay to not have some of the minor details plot it out because at least then you're sure that you're never going to lose your way and end up somewhere that you never imagined you would take the story um, because that's that's when stories feel like unplanned and um, like un, not geometrical and I have a big thing about like geometry and structural integrity of plot lines which <laughs> we can talk about later but yeah as long as I know exactly where everything is headed then it makes it easier to make all the other stuff up along the way. Yeah that makes sense. Do you feel like you're still I don't know, discovering parts of your characters now that you're three books in? Um, I was really familiar with 
all of the three main characters by the time I finished drafting The Burning God. I just felt like I knew them in and out. I knew exactly how to write from their voices. Like dialogue had become so easy because I knew all of their individual verbal tics and their favorite phrases, etc. So what's actually been more difficult is, so I finished drafting The Burning God like quite a while ago and it's been ready and in production. So um, I haven't worked on that uh, since March, I think. Um, so I'm like halfway into the draft of the new project, actually. And this has been a lot harder because now for the first time in five years, I'm working with a different set of characters mm -hmm. and I don't really know their voices yet. And I don't know their personalities and I'm just getting to know them. And it's not something that I can just decide to figure out overnight like I can't like some writers can do this but I can't sit down and be like you have this personality trait and this one and this one like for me it takes a lot of experimentation and thinking and they usually like they alter a lot even from the first draft to the final draft um so I'm still figuring out those new voices and something I'm struggling with in particular is making their voices not sound too reminiscent of mm, previous characters yeah. because their voices are just like they're really fighting to come through and i'm like no like we can't just write a repeat of my debut trilogy you have to be newer and more complex and um you have to go in different directions um but it's hard i feel like i have a lot of ghosts um who still who still want to make their voices heard yeah is your new project related to um, related to your first trilogy at all? Uh, not remotely. I think um, I'm just done with that world for a while. Um, I'm really happy to be finished with it. I think like trilogies are very shackling and that you're stuck with the characters you came up with in the first book and the storylines. And it's it's also really hard to commit to one project for five years. Um, so now I'm really happy to get the chance to explore a new world and a new type of storytelling and new themes and new characters. Um, yeah, like a lot of people ask me if I'm ever going to go back and write stuff in the world of the Poppy War trilogy. Um, just because like, you know, as a reader, like you want more stuff in a world you really like. But as a writer, like that just sounds so unattractive to me right now. Like I'm, I'm just really ready to be done. Yeah. And I mean, that's what fanfic is for, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you draw extensively on Chinese history and culture for your novels, and you have degrees in Chinese studies from Cambridge and Oxford. How, wh where did your professional and creative interest in Chinese culture arise? Do you ever feel like you need to like put an air gap between the two or do they really just freely go back and forth with each other? Oh, they definitely strongly mutually influence each other. Um, and I really can't separate the start of my interest in Chinese history and Chinese literature uh, from my interest in creative writing. Um, so it all started actually, also just to clarify, I do not yet have a degree from Oxford. Oh, okay. I should hopefully by um, October or November or whenever they decide to pass my dissertation, which okay. I, I am certain it will be passed. So I will have a degree at some point, but I can't factually claim right. that I have okay. that degree yet. Pending, um, pending. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was actually, I actually had no intention of being a writer um, or like a professional writer when I was growing up. Um, I also didn't think I would be a historian or do literary studies. Um, and when I started uh, my freshman year of college, I was an economics major and I thought I'd graduate and like work in the State Department or something because that's what you do when you go to Georgetown. Um, <laughs> but I realized very quickly that I just have zero passion for economics or international finance or anything related to numbers. So by the end of my sophomore year, 
um, I was feeling really lost um, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my degree or indeed my life. So I decided to take a gap year. And um, so the previous summer I had taken um, a six week course studying Chinese in Beijing and I'd really liked it. And when I was there, I made connections with a local organization that teaches debate skills to Chinese high school students. So I also had done debate when I was in high school and had a lot of experience teaching and coaching it. So, um, you know, I contacted them again and then I got a job offer. So I, I went to Beijing and took a gap year and worked there for a year. Um, and so a couple things happened. One being that it was my first time really living in and experiencing China since I was a very young child. And also um, being in conversation with my grandparents who I hadn't really known since I came back and finally had the language skills to talk to them. And I was learning so much about our family heritage, our history, stories about what they had been through that I grew up having no idea of. Um, and the second thing was, which is actually kind of funny, um, for the first time in my life since I can remember, I didn't have homework after I got home from work <laughs> at five from like the hours between five o'clock to like midnight were just like free, right? And I couldn't spend all my time socializing. Like <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm too much an introvert for that. So I thought, oh, this would be a fun year to try to finally like finish a big project or learn a skill that I haven't had time for before. And at first I thought, okay, I'm going to learn how to code and be a really good programmer. And then that was too difficult. So I decided to write a novel instead. Okay, and coding is too <laughs> difficult. So I'm going to write a novel. Only, coding is really hard. <laughs> I mean, it is hard. I just, I just laugh because those two both seem impossible to me. Well, at first, when I was writing the novel, I didn't really have goals of publishing it. I just thought it would be an interesting way to catalog all of the stories I'd heard from my grandparents because I wanted to record it all somehow. And it was a way of processing it for me. Um, and then that slowly became the popular. And then, you know, like it all snowballed from there. I was like, oh, maybe this can turn into a career. And then I started submitting it to agents, etc. Um, but at the same time, because I was researching the popular, I was reading like as many books about Chinese history that I could get my hands on and a lot of Chinese literature. And this was all very new material to me. Um, and I thought this is just fascinating. Like this, this was a homecoming for me. This was a reconnection to my heritage. And I also think that's why the popular like strikes such a chord with young diaspora readers um, who are constantly reaching out to me and saying, I didn't really know much about my own heritage. Um, I didn't grow up speaking Chinese. Um, I couldn't find books about people who looked like me. And like this, like this really brought me back to my Chinese roots um, because that like the process of that was my finding my own way back to my roots. Um, so yeah, I came back to Georgetown, changed my major to history and um, and now I'm on track to hopefully um, have a career in academia doing uh, Chinese literary studies. That's amazing. I, I think was it I think it was 2019. I committed to myself that I was only going to read Asian American writers for an entire year. It was great. I loved it. But it was it was through it was through fiction, including your books, that I that I that and I'm an older diaspora than probably than most of your readers. But I was like. I wasn't taught this in school. I like chi like China gets like three days in world history class, and then the, and everything's always so Eurocentric. And uh, for me, it was a lot of a lot of Asian American fiction that taught me so much about the history of various Asian cultures and countries. So, can definitely uh, I can definitely resonate with that. Um, I I think. Well, you just won an award at the Hugo's. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and 
your acceptance speech is fire, by the way, and I will link that um, in the show notes. But I mean, the question of Asian American representation, both on the author side and the character side is a large one. (laughs) Um, I got into a Twitter conversation with a random writer once, and this writer was white, and they wanted to know, how do I write Asian-inspired cultures in a fantasy setting without it being cultural appropriation? And they were thinking specifically about the character's physical description, and so they wanted to avoid inky black hair, almond-shaped eyes, flowing silk robes, whatever. And when I asked them, why do you feel the need to do this? Their response was basically, because diversity. What, What are some issues that you've encountered with AAPI representation as characters and as writers? Um, And then what are some books or authors that are doing AAPI representation really well? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's a really big... It's a huge question. (laughs) Yeah, I'll try to break it down into parts. Um, I think the first part I'll talk about is the issues I've encountered with my own representations of Asian characters and Asian cultures, et cetera. And the first thing to say is like, there's just like, there's not one right way to do it, Mm. right? Like there's no like gold standard of like, this is proper Asian representation because especially when you're writing fantasy or epic fantasy, like there is no authentic representation. Like everything is homage, like everything takes inspiration from the real world, but then everything is changed and refracted um, and fabulated through the lens of fantasy. Um, So an interesting I've, I've interestingly gotten some feedback um, and I can't tell if these readers are white or Chinese. Um, sometimes either, or I mean both or either, I don't know. Um, but people say the poppy war reads as too Western for me, or it's, this isn't proper Chinese representation. Like, and what I think they actually mean is the poppy war does not sound or look like the, big works of Asian fantasy that I've been exposed to. It doesn't look like a wuxia novel. It doesn't look like a sea drama. It doesn't look like a kung fu epic. It is none of those things. Indeed, because I honestly like (laughs) don't like sea dramas that much. And like, there's nothing wrong with like the aesthetic of, you know, like really flowy long hair, flowy robes, like that particular particular kind of martial arts um, and that stylized fight scene. that is really gorgeous, but just like not the kind of military um, engagement that I want to write about. It's just, it's simply not what I wanted to do. And I think this comes from, right, like especially uh, people engaging culture in the West who have only one idea of what Asian fantasy can look like. Um, so the, the poppy war is not too, you know, oriental for them. It's not too stereotypically Chinese for them. Um, and like my other response to people who are like, this is too Western is it is in fact Western, both in its tone and a lot of its themes, because, you know, I grew up in the West. I'm not a Chinese writer. I'm a Chinese American writer. So the poppy war is written in English for a Western audience um, from a diaspora lens which means I am engaging with a lot of things of Chinese history. The characters are obviously coded as Chinese. Um, The language, um, a lot of the Kung Fu systems, all the culture is rooted in Chinese, but a lot of the dialogue, like the three-act structure of the novel itself, like the prose, et cetera, like that is all steeped in Western storytelling traditions that I grew up with. Um, So it is both a Chinese and a Western novel, um, and I can't represent 
Chinese culture and Chinese history any other way because that's my lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've I've generally had a frustration with this kind of like cultural authenticity. I wouldn't use the word gatekeeping because gatekeeping assumes that there are some individuals in in power who can determine who gets published or not. But that's also like not usually Chinese people. But just this this authenticity testing of like this isn't my vision of Chinese. But <laughs> like I mean, let's just consider the vast cultural diversity of China to begin right. with, right? Like there is no proper vision of China. It's such a huge place. There's so many cultures encompassed within that word, and then you add diaspora to that, and you get like so many other cultural mutations and and variations so i just think you know there's there's space to acknowledge a uh, multiplicity of experiences and that's also something important to consider when we think about who's representing asian characters right and who isn't mm-hmm. um the second part of this question which is what do i think of like white creators representing chinese culture chinese people in their works um I, I really don't have an answer to this. And honestly, most times that I'm asked this question, like how could I write a Chinese character? Right. Like the the asker is not super interested in like what it means for them to be writing a Chinese character. What they're really asking is, can I have permission to yeah. write this character? Or what are your conditions uh, that I have to meet to go ahead and write the character I want? And I think, um, a better starting point would be interrogating why why this urge to tell this story, why this urge to include this particular character. I mean, it's one thing, right, if, if you've got a diverse world and you simply want to represent um, a Chinese person in it. But it's another if you're like, this this culture, this fantasy culture has to be Chinese coded. And it's like, like why is that? Like, mm-hmm. Let's think about That's this. That's pretty much what I ended up asking. Level. Yeah. And I mean, like when you, when I mean, I think they get like, People often get really defensive when you ask this because it's yeah. like you you are ascribing like libidinal desires to me that I, I will not admit to. Um, but you know, this, that that interrogation has to happen. Yeah, um, I mean that's really the starting point for should you be writing the story or not. And yeah. it's like I would never make the blanket claim that you know there are like white people can never write. Um, characters of color because then you just get white people writing about white people and and I think it is important to try to empathize with different experiences and try to imagine life from people who really don't look like you but I mean like motive is a really big question in play here and usually the motive is something that I'm suspicious of. Yeah for sure I mean in this conversation I had that's pretty much what ended up happening I kind of kept pressing like but why do you need to do this and and you know and we kept it recently Respectful, but I think I you're right. I don't think this person was asking how to do this correctly. They were asking, can I do this? And yeah. I was like, ultimately, I was like, I'm gonna ask. I I'm just one person, but as an Asian American, please don't do this. <laughs> and I have no I, I don't know what ended up happening. It was this person wasn't an, like an acquaintance of mine, but um yeah, yeah I think I mean, there's an oh go ahead. Oh, I was also going to say there's another a dimension to this, which is um, in a perfect world where everybody had an equal chance of being published, like it would be easier to say, you know, go ahead and write whatever stories you want. But in a world where it's more likely that a white person writing about an Asian character is going to get that book deal and be published widely, like there should be some consideration to who's getting paid for this kind of story, who's Mm -hmm. getting paid for this type of representation and how much are they getting paid compared to white writers who are doing the same thing. 
Um, and which is also not to say that, you know, white writers should never write any stories for fear of taking them away from authors of color. But, you know, there, there should be some reflection on, am I taking an opportunity away from someone else if I do this? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of sort of a, I don't know, converse situation with the with the idea of own voices. I've been kind of ha- I've been reading a couple things about that lately, where it's like, well, how useful is the own voices label? Like, are we, especially, especially for things for like non-racial identity, like identities that don't have to do with race, like, you know, sexual orientation or things like that, where it's like, well, if I want to write, if I want this labeled as own voices, do I have to out myself if I'm not ready to do that? And then does own voices mean that only Asians can write Asians and only, you know, only LGBTQ folks can write LGBTQ characters? And I don't, think so but then it's like where where is the line in that in that conversation I don't know yeah it's such a complicated conversation and I don't think anybody has like hard and fast guidelines um although I do think conversations about writing outside your own um ethnic cultural national etc background um are different when it's by POC authors discussing among themselves uh, versus white writers um, writing stories about by POC. And I've noticed in a lot of writing circles that I'm in that are all by POC authors when we're asking for advice on, you know, like I want to write a Southeast Asian character. I'm not Southeast Asian. Like can anybody give me tips like that? It's coming from a very different place often of um, attempting genuine respectful representation trying to do all the research you can trying to consider everything uh, from a person from that identity's perspective and I don't I really do not often see that kind of care and attention to research and detail from white writers Mm, yeah I I can imagine that (laughs) not gonna name any names or examples but I can I can imagine Um, as we wrap up what advice do you have for Asian Americans who want to be published authors okay I think what I would say is well I'll tell a short story about this when I was just trying to get published I was really really nervous that Um, an Asian-inspired fantasy was just not going to sell because I had not seen any on shelves and I didn't think there was a market for it at all. Um, And it wasn't until I like, went deep researching like has has anybody done this before me um and realized that cindy pond in fact exists and has had book deals and ken Liu had i think just that year published the grace of kings like 2016 like that's or 2015 that's <laughs> that's very recent it was only until i saw that he had gotten that book deal with a big five publisher for um a chinese fantasy that i realized like this is possible and um it can happen. And then obviously the poppy were sold, but just between the time that I was querying and now I've seen so many more Chinese inspired, Korean inspired, Japanese inspired, et cetera, fantasies come out. Um, and, and the crucial thing too, is that they're all so different, like totally, they're very different. They deal with different source mythologies. Um, a lot of them, you know, like, well, pay homage to the same myths like um, Journey to the West or Romance of the Three Kingdoms, et cetera, but everybody has their own riff and take on them. Um, So I have a double-sided piece of advice, which is first, 
the market is there. The, the desire is there. Like Asian fantasy will sell and you can do it. And I know this because there's just been an explosion in that sort of deal um, in the past few years. And the second piece of advice is um, don't ever be scared that somebody's gotten there before you. I used to be really nervous that I was not going to be able to sell the poppy ward because Ken Liu had just published The Grace of Kings. Um, but I mean, <laughs> like white writers like do the same retelling of like fairy tales all the time and they're treated as completely different stories. And even in China, like the way that we retell myths and, and talk about fairy tales, like there are infinite variations. So, um, you know, there's space for everybody and publishing may not always realize that, but um, the good stories are, I, I really believe will find their way out there. And um, never, never, ever feel like there's only space for one Asian in the room because you're definitely, you know, <laughs> there's opportunities for all of us. That is such good advice. I am very prone to like, oh my gosh, one other person in the history of all time has done this thing <laughs> that I'm like sort of doing the same thing, but not exactly. And I'm like, oh, I better not do this. And it's like, no, <laughs> like, there's room for so many perspectives and so many treatments of the same the same or similar story so that is very good I will write that and staple that to my wall maybe <laughs> um, where can listeners find you online so I'm very active on Twitter at at Kwang RF and I also post all major updates to my work and stuff coming out at www.rfkwang.com all right perfect thank you so much thanks for having me Thanks for listening to Chief Executive Ante. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe with your favorite podcast player and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps get the word out about the show and provides the external motivation I need to keep going. You can find show notes, links, and other resources at chiefexecutiveante.com. That's chiefexecutiveauntie.com. Special thanks to Sue Ann Shaw for mixing and mastering this episode, composing the music, and generally being a good human. Alyssa De La Rosa for creating the branding and my distribution partner, Mochi Magazine. See you next time. Thank you.